19 is where we begin reading. I do hope you'll be back for the evening service. Brother Ryan Mitchell will be speaking, and that'll be at 6 o'clock this evening. Choir practice at 5, 5.30 men's prayer, 6 o'clock service, 2 o'clock this afternoon nursing home services. Romans 6 and verse number 19. I remind you of this text of Scripture that to this point we've covered in, over in chapter number 5 what I believe to be one of the great important truths in the whole of the Bible, and that is in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We talked about this before, but it's important for you to understand it, that everybody that dies is a sinner. Everybody that dies is a sinner. When Christ died himself on the cross, he died with our sins, not his. Everybody who died, died as it were with that sin. And so the consequence of our Lord Jesus Christ taking all the sin of the world upon himself, that's why he had to die, is to cover our sin debt. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and therefore death passed upon all people for all the sin. I mentioned it before, and it's important for you to keep it before you. That's why babies die, because babies are sinners. And if you ever get away from that, you're going to get off on the wrong foot from square one. The reason babies die is because babies are sinners, and sin always results in death. Always. And if you get off of that, you're going to get off into liberalism, and you're going to mess yourself up real good theologically. So you need to get a hold on that and get a hold of it very quickly. Now, it doesn't mean present sin, and that's why you need to look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. For as by one man sin entered into the world, whereas all sinned, doesn't mean everybody sinned and because of their present sins that they committed, they died. It means we all sinned in Adam. And that's what so many people miss about Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. Every man is a sinner because every man, woman, boy, girl, baby died or sinned in Adam. And because of Adam's sin, we all were as his descendants sinners. And because we're sinners, Romans 5, 12, you'll die. And that means that all babies die. So the next time somebody tries to pull that stunt on you about, well, why do babies die? There's a very clear Bible answer for it, as some of you pinned and pointed out this week. have had opportunity to share that, and that's an important biblical truth. And you need to get a grip on that and hang on to it. doesn't mean babies are sinners. doesn't mean that they've sinned they haven't even had a chance. What it does mean, under the auspices of what Adam did, all are declared sinners. And we all sinned in him. The second great truth is it comes to Romans chapter 6. And we've hammered away at it for several weeks now. Not only when Christ died on the cross did he pay your sin debt and the penalty for your sin. But he paid for something else that so few Christians really embrace. And that is he paid so you could say no to sin. He made a provision that Christian people, born again believers, could say no to sin. In fact, the matter is, he says it and declares it in Romans chapter 6, that you are, you are freed from sin. It's not you're going to be, and it's not that you're going to die daily to sin. The fact of the matter is, you're dead to sin already. He, when he died on the cross, provided for you and made a provision for you so you could say no to sin. So when you sin, you sin by your own wicked, willful choice. Not because the devil made you do it. Not because of something impressed within your DNA, but because of the fact that you will to do so. It's a choice. And again, we're getting out of this idea in our Bible-believing churches. We're trying to blame somebody else for our sin. And it's not anybody else's fault. It's our fault. We make a choice, a willful choice. 
And in that willful choice, then we bring the consequences upon us. So when we come to Romans chapter 6 and continue, there are many things. I believe the other truth is that only when you realize, embrace the truth that you're freed from sin, I believe only then can you become a servant of God. That's what I believe the text is saying and says over and over again, that um, if you want to be a servant of the Lord, then there's one thing you have to do. Not only know you're saved, but you also have to know you've been freed from sin. And you have to walk therein. And by the way, that doesn't give you a cockiness. It gives you a humility. And it should always remind you, it's not only that works of righteousness don't save you, but works of righteousness do not keep you saved. It is your relationship that's born out in the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's get to the text today. It's in Romans 6 and verses 19 through 23. And it says simply, Paul writing to the church at Rome, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I ran across an outline, and I don't take too much to outlining because I usually do my own and leave it with that, but I ran across one this week in Romans 6 that I think is worth keeping in mind. This outline, in fact, I don't know who even did it, but the fact is it addresses the fact of continuing to sin. That's under the idea. And he takes this chapter, the 23 verses of Romans 6, and the first thing is he takes the first 11 verses, verses 1 through 11, and he says, you cannot sin. His reason? Because you are united to Christ. And he uses all the words, planted, buried, dead with Christ, identified with Christ, and so forth. So the first part of the outline is the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 6, and he's saying you cannot because you are united to Christ, and when Christ died to sin, you died to sin. Second thing in verses 12 through 14, he says you need not sin. And he said because sin's dominion has been broken by God's grace. Verses 12 through 14, you need not sin because sin's dominion over you has been broken. Thirdly, in the outline, verses 15 through 19, he said you must not sin. You must not sin because it would bring sin in again as your master and your Lord. And then fourthly, verses 20 through 23, you had better not sin. And the reason is because it would end in ruin and disaster. That's a good outline, and it certainly speaks well of the whole chapter. It's obvious when you read these 23 verses in Romans chapter 6 that Paul is dealing with sin. And it is also obvious to the reasoning that why he's dealing with sin is to help you deal with sin. So the fact is, this chapter is to help believers deal with sin. And I say that carefully, not that you can do anything to eradicate them or deal with them. Christ already died for them. But it is for you to address the sin issue. Thomas Fuller, a preacher, said, He that falls into sin is a man. He that grieves at his sin is a saint. And he that boasteth of his sin is a devil. I believe it was William Shakespeare who said, and I didn't read him much when I was in school. I read him only what I had to read. But I believe he's a guy who said, To be or not to be, that is the question. 
Well, I'd say that Paul would change that in light of this chapter and say to sin or not to sin, that is the issue. And that issue points up the doctrine of the two ways. And that's the subject matter of which we address this morning. The doctrine of the two ways. And this whole chapter is made very clear. Being a Christian and not being a Christian are two mutually exclusive positions. And you need to get a hold on that. To be a Christian or not to be a Christian is mutually exclusive positions. Let me take you to the New Testament for a moment. Look, if you would, in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Look at verse number 13. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 13. This is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, as it's called. And our Lord made this very clear point about the doctrine of the two ways. And every Christian needs to understand the doctrine of the two ways as it shows up all the way through the Bible. Here in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 13, Matthew writes, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Verse 14, But because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. It tells you that there are two ways. There are two gates. Read on down verse number 15. In verse number 15, he starts talking about two kinds of trees. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Verse 16, you know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Verse number 18, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Two kinds of trees. Everybody in this room is one or the other of those kind of trees. And by the way, we don't have to look at you as an individual to decide that. We just have to look at the fruit you produce. We just have to look at what are you producing. What, what's coming out of your life? What is emanating from who you are? And what is it that people see and learn the most from you? That's what your fruit is. And this verse of Scripture says, good trees cannot, or evil trees cannot bring good fruit. It just won't work that way. But he goes further. He goes on in verse number 21 to two kinds of professions. Look at verse number 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils? In thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. What that is is two kinds of faith. There's a kind of faith that is with works and a kind of faith that is totally, absolutely anchored in the work, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what that passage of Scripture is dealing with, faith and no faith. A real profession, one that's based on what Christ did and my confidence in what he did as effective for me. And then a kind of work that says, look, I've got to do a lot because when I get there, I've got to hand him my list and say, see all the stuff I did for you? Doesn't this count? Doesn't this mean that I get into heaven? And he's going to say, I'm sorry, that becomes iniquity to me because you didn't know my son. My son came into this world to die for your sin. 
And the most basic fundamental thing for you to do is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. So simple, a child can do it. But every man, woman, boy, or girl born into this world is born a sinner, and they must be born again. That only happens by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two professions, but he's not done. Look at verse number 24. There are two foundations. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house. It fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Verse 26. And every one that heareth my, my, these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he had taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Obviously, this passage talks about two foundations, one of rock and one of sand. And it also indicates something very amazing, that those people who hear his word and doeth them, heareth his word, and doeth them, heareth his word, and doeth it, is on the rock. Not that person who hears and then does his own thing. That fellow's building a house, a ministry, a life, and a future on sand. The thing is that it won't take eternity to prove that. When the winds blow and the rains come and the floods rise, by the very nature of life, it will prove this guy had it and this guy didn't have it. And that text of Scripture proves again the doctrine of the two ways is something that is confronted on every turn and every corner. All through the Scriptures, you see the doctrine of the two ways laid out before us. What's important about this, there should be absolutely, unequivocally, no guesswork about whether or not I am or I am not a Christian. That's what it does. It eliminates any of this guesswork kind of thing. And by the way, not only for you, but for all the people who know you. Everybody who knows you ought to know clearly whether you're on a rock or on sand, whether you're a good tree or an evil tree, whether or not your profession of faith is real or not. It ought to be a matter that everything about you ought to say and suggest to people the genuineness of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, some who are uh, true believers do something that's absolutely beyond my understanding of reason. And that is they slip back into their lives little by little sin from which they have been in the past freed. And in time, it's hard to clearly identify them who really are Christians from them who are not. And I mean by that, they may have made a profession of faith, they may have done all the right things, but then all of a sudden you begin to see and pick up on things that show that uh, maybe the change wasn't real, and maybe it wasn't down deep, maybe it was superficial, maybe it was under pressure, maybe it was all done under motion, maybe it was a stress kind of thing, whatever. They were trying and doing and suggesting all kinds of activity that might somehow quieten their spirit. And somebody suggested go to church, walk down the aisle, pray a prayer, fill out a card, and join a church. But the only problem with that is, you see, that doesn't solve the heart problem. That can get everybody around you believing you're on board, and it can get everybody around you know you're, quote, a member of a church and been baptized and all that. But it doesn't solve the problem of the heart, by the way, and you take the heart home with you every night. And when you lie down on your pillow at night and your heart says to you, you're not a Christian, 
you know full well you are not a Christian. That is the most obvious thing. You know that. You are not a Christian. You don't think like one. You don't act like one. You don't live like one. You have no heart for God. You don't listen to His Word and obey it. You listen to it and then go do your own. You are not a Christian. And your heart just yells and screams and your conscience sits there and wrestles back and forth all evening. Am I? Am I not? Am I? Am I not? It's like pulling out the petals on a daisy. I am. I am not. I am. I am not. And you just pray that the last one standing on that... uh, flower is I am I am may I say to you that's some of what Paul is dealing with in this passage because he's dealing with people who have not got it yet that they are freed from sin and they have no business going back and tampering with and entangling themselves again with this sin by the way if it is a thing with you and you've allowed sin back into your life people begin to notice it they'll notice it in probably uh, music that you listen to You know that? Christian people ought to have a distinctively Christian kind of music they listen to. Christians ought to have a distinctive kind of clothing. Your clothing speaks for you, and and your clothing ought to say, I'm a Christian. I dress like a Christian always, everywhere. It ought to say it everywhere. Everybody sees you say, they dress like Christian people. They listen to music like Christian people. Their language is like Christian people. I mean, this this language they use, they don't tell any off-color jokes. They don't, they don't talk about stuff that you ought not talk about in that kind of setting and circumstance. They don't do that. They are Christian, both in their language, their clothing, their music, their friendships. They don't run with a crowd of people that you say, well, who in the world did they dig those folks up from? I mean, grief, day. I mean, look at this crowd. They don't say that. Birds of a feather flock together. Now, I'm not talking about witnessing, folks, and I'm not talking about you not going out and talking to people who need Christ as Savior. I'm not talking about that, and you know that. You're not silly and stupid. You've been at New Life Baptist Church long enough to know that I mean, I'm talking about your closest associates and your friendships and those people with whom you've hooked noses and really gotten into what we call contact of sociality. That's the kind of people I'm talking about. And I'm saying to you, if your friends in that circle reflect an ungodliness then you're going to have a very hard time selling anybody that you really know Jesus Christ is your Savior. And that's what this passage in which Paul is dealing with. The scenario is being played out in people's lives all the time, and it may be playing out in yours. And if it is being played out in yours, and you've pretended and acted like you're a Christian, and yet nothing about you shows fruit of a good tree, then, my friend, I'd recommend you take a careful look at Romans chapter 6 and ask yourself this question. Have I really been freed from sin? Has the penalty of my sin, have I accepted Christ's payment for my sin? Have I embraced the payment that he made? Am I really embracing the truth that the Bible teaches? I've been freed from it. If I've been freed from it, then why am I in bondage to it? And there are folks in this room who still are. There are folks in this room who are as in bondage to sin this hour as they were the first day they were born in this world. Because they have not embraced this truth, this great truth of God's Word. Let me say to you, if you're a Christian, and I mean one who's real and genuine down deep, and you've just simply wandered back into sin, or you've allowed sin to wander back into your life, then let me warn you this morning that there are consequences to sin. And this passage of Scripture talks about them to some degree, but it is a fact that sin has consequences. And when it comes into the believer's life, they can be very painful and create a lot of tears. And all of that is needless, ought not be. Look again, Romans chapter 6. And in Romans chapter 6, we focus on one verse. That's all we'll get today. 
So look at it and get to know it well. It's verse number 19. Verse number 19 says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. Good place to stop. There's a colon in my King James Version Bible. It says right there at that location, we'd stop and take a look at this. What's he mean? Well, I believe he means two things. First off, all the way through here, he's used this idea of, of slaves and masters to explain this Bible truth about being freed from sin. Since he's used that, he says, in essence, in verse number 19, I'm speaking this way, or I'm using this illustration about masters and slaves because of the infirmity. The word we would use is the weakness of your flesh. What I would say is the weakness of your flesh, the humanness of your thought patterns, you are not able to embrace or grasp this truth in any other setting. So he uses something they're very familiar with. And he is saying, because of the infirmity of the weakness of your flesh, I've used this slave master illustration. By the way, there's a second reason I believe he would use it, and that is because it is estimated historically that up to one-third of the population of Rome would have been slaves. One third of them. And so the slave issue, the slave illustration is a very good one that he's used all along in Romans chapter 6. And he's here explaining, I've been using this because of the infirmity of your flesh, weakness of your flesh. You haven't, you wouldn't understand it if I illustrated it another way. So just grasp it this way. Now look at back at verse 19. What does he get at in verse 19? A lot of things. First off, he says, For as ye have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. There's a ton of stuff in that section. I would start out by calling your attention to what we call scriptural comparisons. Can you see it in the verse? Something in the verse, this is compared to that. You see it? Let's just play a game. When you see it, raise your hand. A comparison in the verse. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, it's coming. Slow, but it's coming. You see the verse says, verse 19, for as, didn't skip down past what he was saying about the for as, even so. That's a scriptural comparison. You'll find it all through the Bible. It's repeatedly put forth. And what he's saying here, even as or for as ye have in the past yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and iniquity unto iniquity, even so now in comparison. What you did back there, I want you to do it over here, but I just want you to do it in a different context. Same thing, same plan, just in a different context. By the way, you'll find it through your Bible. Let me read you a few. John chapter 3, verse 14. Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 10 says, as the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father. As the Father knows me, I know the Father. Comparison. Verse number 12, our chapter 12 of John. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting whatsoever I speak. Therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak to you. The point made is he said it, I'm going to say it. Comparison. We call them scriptural comparisons. And Paul makes one of them here in Romans chapter 6 and verse number 19. Here's what he's saying. Before you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, like all of the fallen human race of Adam, had no interest, no desire, and no strength but to pursue a natural bend to sin. That's the way you were and that's the way I was. That's what he says in verse number 19. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. And by the way, uncleanness and iniquity, those two words there in the Greek, 
many folks would interpret as saying inward sin, outward sin. That's the ideal. It covers all the bases. And do not miss what's tucked away right in the middle of the verse there. Notice in that verse he uses the phrase iniquity unto iniquity. You ought to write out to the side of your Bible this truth. Sin is progressive. Sin is progressive. Sin does not come into your life and lie dormant. Never has, never will. Sin is like cancer or like poison. It spreads. And what he's saying with that phrase, iniquity unto iniquity. You get sin into your life and what you were before you knew Christ as Savior, your sin produced sin. It just produced sin and produced sin and produced sin and produced sin and produced sin. And a cycle won't get stopped until the grace of God shows up one day, knocks on your heart's door, convicts you of your sin, and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Then the process stops. Then you get to go to the second part of the verse. Don't go there yet. We got more to say here. This is important. Sin's progressive. And what it is is to say, as a cancer, it reproduces itself until the whole body is contaminated with corrupted cells. And that's exactly what sin does in the life of a person. It reproduces itself. Iniquity unto iniquity. And if a Christian goes out and, and somehow gets out into sin, he reintroduces the cancer back into his life that he's been, quote, cured of through the grace and redemption of God. So what he does is it's like drinking a new cup of poison. He says, yeah, I think I'll, I'll take a sip of that poison. And he drinks into his life this new sin, and this sin then permeates his whole body. And unless he eradicates and purges that sin from his body, it'll reproduce itself. It'll reproduce itself. And may I tell you that... Um, Christian people, it's not only for you, it's for the people around you that you need to not only grip this truth, but you also need to eradicate the poison and the cancer from your body. Because, believe me, people are watching you. I notice this, uh, when a person commits a crime in our society, the media will, first of all, somewhere in the process, dig up anything they can about a, quote, religious relationship. I have about eight or ten stories in my file that prove my point. Here's a story about a guy who, who you know, what he did, he, he, he kicked a dog. And, uh, you know, he was walking the street and he kicked this dog. Now, that doesn't seem too bad, except he says the dog snarled at him, was going to bite him. He became fearful. He kicked the dog. The only thing was he kicked that dog right behind his front leg and he killed that dog. I mean, this dog just walked up. Mm. Legs sticking out to the side. Dog dead, big time. Family sued him. Do you know when this thing went to paper, when the paper got a hold of this thing, and I'm not talking about our local paper, this is out of the state. When the, when the media got a hold of it, do you know what they said? He sits on the third row of the choir of the First Baptist Church. I'm serious. He, he sits on the third row of the First Baptist Church choir. Now, you'll forgive me, but what, what does it have to do with sitting on the third row in the Baptist Church due to kicking a dog? You see? My point is made thus. When the pagan commits a criminal act, he's exempt from such exposure. Because the media is testifying to this very biblical truth that Paul writes about in chapter 6 and verse 19. Get it this way. The pagans have no regard for a right relationship with God or a relationship with what's right as a practice and a pattern of their life so when they do something that's wicked and it's made public, it's expected. When we do it, it's news and heaven weeps. You see the point? 
News media just expects them to do it. That, that's what they do. That's how they live. That's the lifestyle they have. That's what Romans chapter 6 verse 19 says. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness, to iniquity, unto iniquity. That's the way you were. And you're, the sin in your life, it just keeps on coming. Just keeps on coming. Just keeps on coming. And it won't stop. And there's not a thing in the world a pagan can do to stop the process. Here's an interesting thing. Let me take you to the Old Testament, to the Psalms. Psalm 1, to be exact. Psalm 1. Very important passage to teach this truth. Psalm 1. And look at verse 1. Psalm 1. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Right out beside that, you ought to write the words, Progression of sin. Progression of sin. Same thing you wrote over in Romans chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 19, you ought to write beside this verse, a progression of sin. In the context of this verse, here is how it works. First of all, there is a walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, you can describe that, and I've heard it described a thousand different ways, but I can tell you this. One thing is this. It's taking the pagans' ideas and trying to make your life, as it were, patterned for them or by them. Now, you can take it from the news media. You can take it from higher education. You can be sitting in a classroom, in a college-level class, and they can be spewing out things about evolution and how you got here by a chance and a spark and a, and a bombshell and all that stuff. And, and you can reason into that that there's nobody to answer to, and you can live your life your way, do your own thing, and you'll live as happy as anybody else will. You can take it that way, and the passage may indeed say that. But really what it's saying here is a person who absolutely gathers from all sources everything that makes him think the way he thinks. We call it a worldview. And everywhere you get it, whether you sit down and listen to Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings, or anybody else, they're giving you a worldview. They're telling you how to think. And they're doing everything in their power to try to direct your thinking the way they're thinking. And the way that thinking institution thinks. And what they're trying to do is, is to absolutely guide your steps so you'll walk the way they want you to walk. That's exactly what you're... And if you sit there naively thinking they're unbiased and they have no bias whatsoever, you're nuttier than a Christmas fruit kick. That's not what this is about. This world is no friend of anybody who stands for right or righteousness. And boy, Robert Reich this week proved it. Diane gave me a copy of a thing, a statement he made. Paul Harvey got off on it the other day. And I mean, this guy said simply, God is the guy who's dangerous. Anybody following God, that God's the dangerous one. It's not the terrorist. Don't be a you know terrorist. You know what they are. I know what they're about. But God, that's the guy you got to watch out for. Our old friend Robert Wright, a Bill Clinton guy, a fellow who no doubt will show up in another administration of liberalism whenever the opportunity comes. I mean, this guy is spouting blasphemous kind of statements. God is to be feared in America. Now, he may be feared because if we're sinful, he's righteous and things don't go well that way. I grant you that. But not the way he's talking not the way he's talking. And I'm saying to you, this passage of Scripture is saying everywhere you gather into your mind and heart, your worldview, if you're getting it from the pagans, let me tell you something, walking in their counsel, you're already heading in the wrong direction. Second thing he says is, he standeth in the way of sinners. This idea of standing is not meaning so much a standing as a stationary point. The ideal is, is to be in participation with, to associate with. Standing in the way with sinners, being in contact with them in such a way that everything they do, you seem to say is okay, this is fine, I like it, I'm, I'm enjoying this. That's the part of the idea. It's a participatory word. There's a third word. That third word is sitting. By the way, look at this. You're walking in the council. That is taking their advice. Then you start 
standing, and that is in a participating way, involved with them. And then thirdly, sitting. And he talks about sitting in the seat of the scornful. Let me tell you something. As a believer, you need to watch out for it. When you become critical of spiritual things, of good people trying to do their best, they may not be doing it right, but if they're trying it and it's biblical and it is something that we don't have to sound in a warning about and they're honestly trying to do right, you better be careful being critical about them. Because that's the first symptom of somebody who's got sin in their heart and they are progressing down the ladder. So be careful what you criticize. Be careful about getting a, a, a spirit of being scornful on people. You know, the first thing I notice is when folks do, uh, when I say something and, and they get bent out of shape of what I say, and which is every week, every Wednesday, every Sunday night. But anyway, whenever people get through that thing, it's interesting what they'll criticize about the New Life Baptist Church. I mean, I'm telling you, I've said it before and I say it again and I say it with abruptness. I've had people criticize the kind of toilet paper the New Life Baptist Church uses. You think I'm kidding? Before the God of heaven, I'm not kidding. Now you can say, well, they have reasons. They thought, yeah, they may have, but the point is, you know, when you start saying, look, you need to change the toilet paper in this place. My goodness. You got to be careful because what this is, this is a, what I call a progression. I really call it even evil evolution. Evil evolution. You get sin in the heart of a Christian, I'll tell you exactly what he'll do. He'll start walking in the counsel of the ungodly. He'll start standing or participating in the way of sinners. And the third thing he'll do is he'll start becoming scornful. He'll be sitting in the seat of the scornful. He'll be sitting on the sideline criticizing godly people trying to do good things. Now let me tell you something. I dare you, I dare you to take on people who are trying to do the best they can for the honor and the glory of the Lord. You may not agree with them. If you don't agree with them, just suck it up and go on your way. But you ought to thank God for everybody who lives by a higher standard than you do. And you ought to thank God that they're making an attempt to honor the Lord by their behavior in a Christ-likeness. You ought not sit in the seat of the scornful and be critical and undermining and hurt them and offensive to them. You want to pick on some? Pick on a Robert Wright. Get out and stand on a street corner against that kind of guy. Or some of these other nuts who get up and say some of the most foolish things. And some things, by the way, I am confident they'll be called in before Almighty God for by the way, in fairness, the text of Scripture does not just deal with the progression of sin. It also deals with Romans chapter 6, verse 19, and the latter part. Let me read you Roman, or Psalm 1 here while we're at the present, and then we'll go back to Romans chapter number 6. He says here, but his delight, and by the way, in verse 1 he was saying, Blessed is the man that doesn't do those things. He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of the scornful. Verse 2, but this guy, his delight... His delight, his delight. You ought to park there a minute. When you picked up the scriptures the last time, were they, were they a delight both to read and to plan on obeying? You see, this is, this is characteristic of the real person in the Christian faith. This is the real deal, guy. This is the real deal, woman, girl, boy. This is the real deal. What did he do? He, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree. Now notice the progression of righteousness or fruitfulness. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. 
And then he goes back to the ungodly. Ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. I simply say to you, there's a progression of sin, and there's a progression of righteousness. And when you come back over here to uh, Romans chapter 6, you can see that. But I remind you, verse 19, Romans 6, Because of the infirmity of your flesh, he says, For as ye have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness, and to iniquity, unto iniquity. By the way, uh, I was reading this last week somewhere, and I don't remember where I picked it up. But I was reading about a man by the name of Sinclair Lewis. You probably remember him. He uh, wrote a, he was a literary guy. He wrote the, um, the book, the story, actually, of Emmer Gantry. Remember that guy? Emmer Gantry was a, a Bible-thumping preacher, evangelist who went across the country, so to speak, and uh, preached what he called the gospel, as it were. And the fact of the matter is, Sinclair wrote Emmer Gantry, the story, uh, because, one, he hated Christianity so much, and he wanted to p- point out how much it was a hypocritical kind of religion. So when he wrote Emmer Gantry, he did not write it as a friend of the court. He wrote it as a guy who really wanted to undermine it. He wanted to hurt its cause. And he was contending that that movie and that film, and by the way, it did get to be a movie on the TV, and people saw it, and, and people read the story, and they, they got to thinking, you know, that's what religion is. It's, it's this guy who pretended to be an evangelist, went around the country carrying this big black Bible and pounding it on pulpits and speaking to people and taking up offerings and, and doing all this kind of stuff. And then when he'd go back to his tent, he'd be drunk on a skunk. Remember, the, remember that part of the story? And what it was, what it was setting up is, here's a man who lived a double life. Privately, he was an alcoholic, he was a drunk, he was a womanizer, and he was a thief. And several people read that story, several people saw that TV movie, but not many people got to read the rest of the story. And you ought to hear the rest of the story. The rest of the story is very simple. It sounds like to me Sinclair Lewis was really uh, sort of opening his heart up and telling everybody what was really going on in his life because, in fact, he died an alcoholic, a drunk, in a third-rate clinic outside of Rome, Italy. He was a wreck and a ruin, and of all that, he was a puppet on the end of a string of his own wicked, sinful lifestyle, telling people he hated himself for what he knew in his heart he was but had no power to change. He's right about that. It's not in man to change himself. Can a leper change its spots? Can an Ethiopian its color? What in the world did we think for a second that we could be what we ought to be by our own wish list? It won't work that way. It's when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ the changes come. And they come by the grace of God. Notice in Romans 6 verse 19 the last part. As we've covered the first four as... And I, I don't want you to forget it. This is comparison. So as ye have yielded your member servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now, here's what I want you to do. Even so now, I want you to yield your member servants to righteousness unto holiness. This is an exciting thing to me, this phrase. When we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this amazing thing takes place. You see that sin that produced iniquity unto iniquity when we were lost and in sin? An amazing thing happens here. The whole process is reversed. And I mean by that, whereas the sin principle is reversed, where sin produced sin, now that we've yielded ourselves unto righteousness, righteousness produces righteousness. Righteousness produces holiness. 
What that says is very simply, a believer who's yielded to righteousness becomes cleaner and cleaner, purer and purer, and more and more conformed to the image of God's Son, our Savior. Does that mean you'll never sin again? Absolutely not. But it does mean that in the general process of your life as a Christian, if you continue to yield to sin, the progression of your becoming more like Christ will become more obvious. Let me tell you something, and let me speak personally. When I came to the New Life Baptist Church, there were people in this auditorium that did not impact me as being interested in becoming Christ-like. Just didn't. When I met them, uh, I was not impressed. (laughs) Not that you were with me, but that's neither here nor there. I'm not talking about me now. I'm talking about you. But anyway, the fact is, when I met these people, it just didn't strike me as they got a real spiritual zeal and hunger for the Lord. Let me tell you, there are folks in this auditorium who have it now. Oh, it's not because of Rick Henry. That's not the point. The point is they yielded to righteousness and righteousness produced righteousness and righteousness produced righteousness and he kept a process started and going and moving in their hearts and lives that now their whole practice of life shows up differently. Their interests are different. Their attitudes toward things are different. Everything about them is different. How'd that work? Because the sin principle was reversed. That's how it works. And righteousness produces righteousness. And that's why what we want to do is get our young people and our children off on the right foot early because if we can get righteousness sown in their lives and they become yielded to righteousness early on, righteousness will produce righteousness. And that's why if we get young people and children really intoxicated, indoctrinated with Bible truth that they can sink their teeth into and live out in their lives in a lifestyle, when they get older, they will not depart from it. That's what the scriptures teach. Train up a child in the way he should go. Training doesn't mean teaching one uh, one 40-minute session on Sunday and he's going to shake the world for Christ. That's not what he says. Training is a continuous, perpetual kind of thing. And it doesn't really mean church at all. It means you, mom and dad, you train this child day in, day out, every hour, on the hour, every time you come in contact, every word you speak, every action you take, every attitude you show. And then as this child leaves home, he'll say, you know, my mom and dad set this thing right. This thing works. And he or she will not depart from it. And that's what we mess up at. See, we want to turn this job over to somebody else. Pastor Henry, you take these kids and you rear them and train them and teach them and do everything you've got to do to them. And then when you get done with them, send them out on their own and we'll just pray. Boy, we'll hold on. We'll just hope they work out. No, no, it doesn't work that way. God holds us accountable. Children are a heritage of the Lord. That means they're not yours, they're His. They're on loan. And one day He's going to call in all His. And He's going to say, hey, wait a minute. You mean I gave you these kids and you did not train them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? You did not set before them the example that they should have seen so they can watch in living color how to live the Christian life? Would you mind telling me why? I mean, I supplied your needs. I gave you my word. I gave you a church. I gave you Christian people. I gave the avenue of prayer. I gave you all these things. And you're telling me you messed up. And you're going to say, I was so busy. I was so busy. You just can't believe how busy I was. Isn't it amazing how amazing to me that being busy has become America's cheap excuse have you heard that lately? I mean, everything that we don't do right, I'm just so busy. I'm just so busy. Wouldn't it be wonderful if tomorrow morning the Lord took everything out of your life that takes away all your busyness that has influenced or hurt the cause of Christ in your home? Wouldn't it be amazing? I wonder what we'd have left. 
would there be anything left? I mean, what if he just cleaned house and said, okay, you too busy? No problem. I can handle that. You reckon those ladies who live in that two-story house in Nineveh where lightning struck it are too busy this morning? It's all gone. It's all gone. It's all gone. I just remind you, it's not he who gets the biggest pile of toys when the program's over that wins. It's he who has conformed to the image of God's Son and lived out accordance to the Word. That's all he's interested in. Not interested in anything else you've got or you could do because nothing you've got you'll take to heaven with you outside of your family, your friends, people, people. That's all that's going. And if you're not careful, you'll spend most of your life on stuff. You'll give your life's blood for stuff. And when you come face to face with him, let me tell you, it won't be a picnic when he looks you in the eyes and says, what'd you do with all the time I gave you? What'd you do with all these blessings I wanted you to enjoy and be an encouragement? To, what'd you do with all that? And you'll say, we multiplied that by 45 times. And man, we got so busy, we couldn't even go to church on Sunday. I mean, you had to stay home and mow the grass and had to go Wednesday night and do this and had to take care of that. I mean, just couldn't go. I mean, we just, and he says, you mean to tell me the things I gave you to be a blessing to you, you turned against me with? You mean you didn't show up my house even though I wrote in my word, forget not the assembling of yourselves together in the ma- and, and so much the more as you see the day of... You mean to tell me I gave that verse to exhort you to be faithful and you're telling me the very things I gave you, the very abilities I gave you, you used against me? You'll forgive me, but I'd like to be there when you answer that. I'd like to be sitting over in the corner. Oh, I don't want to be in front. I want to be behind somewhere behind him just waiting to hear that answer. And by the way, I'm not without my faults on those either. I have to sometimes stop and say, wait a minute, what's more important here? I'd rather be doing this, but I ought to be doing this. And I have to make choices just like you do. I have to say no to things just like you do. And I'm saying to you that this passage of Scripture hits us right between the eyes and tells us, even as it was the way we were before, we need to be that way now, but only in a different arena. This time it ought to be righteousness and holiness, and we ought to be yielding ourselves to that so it reproduces itself. By the way, something that I get from that verse that uh, is sometimes, I think, overlooked, it says the words in verse number 19, for as, and in the latter part, even so, I would say this, If you and I would put the same energy, if every believer would put the same energy into advancing the kingdom of God and His righteousness that we put into advancing the devil's kingdom and His unrighteousness, the church of Jesus Christ would be the most respected institute on the face of the earth and we would have more input packed around the world than anybody in any any society or any kind of organization could possibly have if we just put the same energy in. And I believe that's what the verse is saying. Even as, or for as, even so do the same now. Just like what you did back there, yielding yourselves servants to sin and unrighteousness, and that unrighteousness produced iniquity and it increased iniquity. Now, he says to you, I want you to yield your members, your body as servants to righteousness that will produce holiness. And he's saying, I'd like for you to use the same energy. Isn't it amazing? Some people can be a live wire when they're lost. And boy, I mean, they make all the bars at night. They make all the, the nightlight places. They get saved and you can't even get them to church. Isn't that amazing? 
I mean, they were flea afoot when it was all in sin. But then when it comes to church, oh, I can't do that. This passage of Scripture says, As you were a sinner, you need to be a saint, but in a different arena. That's what the verse says. And there is no standing still, by the way, in this spiritual arena. You'll either go backward or you'll go forward. But you cannot stand on the sideline and be mutual or neutral. Something else, the secret of this spiritual progress in what I call sanctification and this personal holiness is a, a servant spirit and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. I read again this week for my own benefit, Exodus chapter 21 and verse number 5, where Israel's been given the law concerning slaves. And if this slave came and, and was there and he got his wife and had children while he was a slave, then he has to make a choice. And the passage in chapter 21 comes to a point where this slave is brought to the master and the master tells him, he said, now you can go free, but your wife and your children and everything will have to stay here because they were, they were mine in the beginning. Uh, the, the wife was and then the children you had because you're my slave, they become my possessions. So your wife and your children have to stay here, but you can go free. I'm always taken by that phrase when that slave speaks up and says, I love my master. I love my wife. I love my children, and I will not go free. I will not go free. And the master would repeat, don't you understand? Now, look, I'm giving you your freedom. I'm going to write the emancipation for you, and you can walk out the door, and you never have to look back, and you can start your own life. He, in essence, says, I understand that. But I love my wife. I love my children. I love my master. I will not go free. Let me tell you, that's pretty well what you have to decide when it comes to the sin issue. What is your master this morning? Have you been saved by the grace of God? Do you know Jesus Christ as Savior? Are you free from sin and the knowledge? you have the understanding of that? We sing a song around here. For all the Lord has done for me, I never will cease to love him. Is that true of you? What has he done for you? What has Jesus Christ done for you? Has he saved you? Has he brought you into an understanding of what you have in himself and made it very clear to you so you could practically obey it and implement it in your life? Let me begin at the beginning. If you're here this morning and you never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me invite you to come as we begin the invitation song in just a moment. We'll sing the first verse, and usually just the first verse. Holy Spirit's not slow to work. It's just us slow to act. So we'll sing one verse, and as we sing that verse, we'll invite you to come and allow someone to take a Bible. If you're a man, we'll have a man to take a Bible and show you in one of our counseling rooms how you can be saved and know it. If it's a woman comes, we'll have a, woman, a lady with a Bible. She'll take you. If it's a couple, a man will take the two of you. My point is, if you need to know Christ as Savior, if there's an uncertainty and unsureness about that issue, you need to get it cleared up today. Because being a Christian and not being a Christian is exclusively different. There is no comparison in those. They are obviously, conspicuously different. So there shouldn't be any question in your mind, am I, am I not? You shouldn't be wrestling in your evening sleep about, am I, am I not a Christian? It ought to be crystal clear, and you ought to be able to rest in that. But secondly, it ought to be true that you understand you've been freed from sin. The penalty of your sin has been paid, but also the provision for you to say no to sin has been made. You don't have to bow down to sin. You don't have to allow sin back on the throne of your life. You can say no. But you have to understand you have to say no. You have to say no. And also this business in this passage of Scripture, to understand as a Christian, when you let sin back into your life, it's like cancer being reintroduced in your body. I'll guarantee you, it'll progress. 
It'll do all it can to ruin you. Because the devil himself, I am encouraged to believe, is the one who slips it into our, our drink, as it were, to get us to get it reintroduced into our lives, entices us with the simplest of things, and then it begins to spread, and in time it ruins us. And all the time Jesus Christ died to set us free from it. Doesn't make any sense, does it? How is it with you this morning? What's your standing in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask you now to bless your word as it's gone forth and this feeble presentation of it. Pray that you'll help people to understand the basic truth of the text of Scripture. Help them to embrace it, believe it, and now act upon it. As we sing the invitation song, Just As I Am, I pray that folks in this auditorium would see their need of Jesus Christ and by your faithfulness of the Holy Spirit to work in hearts and convict as we sing this invitation song, may they walk down these aisles desiring, wanting to trust Christ as their personal Savior. I pray for believers here that they may this morning embrace the simple but important eternal truth that the provision has been made for us. We've been freed from sin. We have no business continuing to be a slave and bondage to sin. Speak to our hearts about this. Remind us of the consequences of sin. Sin does not lie dormant in our lives. It reproduces itself. It causes more trouble. And I pray this morning you'll help us as this verse of Scripture has admonished us to do so. As we put in so much energy as when we were lost and serving evil and unrighteousness, help us now to give the same energy and the effort and the same attitude toward serving righteousness. Speak to our hearts as we wait before you. Bring forth the fruit you've ordained for this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please, and turn in your hymn book 282, Just As I Am. We sing the first stanza of God has spoken to your heart this morning about your need, whatever the Holy Spirit has said that to be. We invite you to come and allow us to address that with you, and we'd be glad to do it here this morning. Whatever we can do to help, we will. 282, verse 1, If God has spoken, you come. Together and sing, Just as I am God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much for your time and your attention. Do please be back with us for the evening service and don't forget nursing home services this afternoon. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for this hour and for the Sunday school hour. Thank you for the privilege we've had to be in your house. Thank you for the measure of help that you give us that makes that possible. We acknowledge your hand in that. Thank you for our guests, our visitors this morning. Please bless them for coming and bless our members, Father, for their faithfulness. Thank you for their being here, being faithful and consistent blessing upon the whole of the congregation as they leave give safety protection and bless the nursing home services this afternoon may much fruit be brought forth from the ministry of your word the music the message pray you bless in that fellowship may it be to your glory and bless brother ryan as he speaks tonight here give us a blessing and speak to each of our hearts and pray you'll use him as your servant your messenger to do it in christ's name we pray amen may the lord bless you and keep you until we meet again you're dismissed <laughs>